I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. This week, we are going to talk about some articles that we found in a really wild journal that's all about Christianity and communism way back in the early 90s, so right after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, I think for a while we've kind of been just dancing around the question of like what Christians should think about the fall of the Soviet Union and, and about socialism in general. And we have got some insights from Leonardo Boff, or sorry, no, Clodovis Boff, <laughs> the lesser known of the Boffs, and uh, Fry Beto. But before we get there, uh, Matt, um, what kind of Magnificasti news do you have? Yeah, so in case you missed last week or just skipped over it, uh, we're still doing the Damnificast, a whole new podcast um, on the other side of that Patreon paywall um, it's pretty cool. So we've made two episodes so far. Um, the most recent episode is uh, on episode two of the damn uh, on. <laughs> whoa, it's on episode two of Damnation, uh, an episode called Which Side Are You On? Um, so it's up on Patreon now. Some of the highlights include um, more talk about Father Thomas Haggerty, um, lots of stuff about Hammer and Ho. Um, we also uh, we did this uh, episode with Jared Ware um, from Millennials Are Killing Capitalism. So definitely something you won't, won't want to miss. Um, yeah, it was a pretty cool episode, man. It's actually a really interesting show. I mean, for just being like, I don't know, a weird show that was on USA for a second and now is just on Netflix. It has sparked some pretty interesting conversations. And uh, yeah, you should watch the show and you should listen to the Damnificast. Yeah, I love it. It's really great. Um, also, Matt says a couple of big, big cuss words behind that paywall. Oh, so. boy. I did say him. Cast after dark is real. Yeah, uh, we're still on that uh, good Christian uh, cuss caucus. So um, <laughs> support our cussing and swears and just big, big curse words uh, by giving us, you know, uh, $2 and you can listen to it. That's um, you should really you should think of the Patreon as a giant swear jar. Oh, that's a good point. But everyone has to pay for me swearing. <laughs> that's right. It's a reverse a reverse swear jar. Yeah, like every time someone pays, then Matt has to say cuss. That's the swear jar under communism is uh, <laughs> people have to pay for you uh, to curse. That's right. Uh, well, speaking of uh, bad people have to pay for you communism jokes, Matt, I hear you've been plumbing the Reddit, the Reddit uh, plumbing again. Yeah, actually, speaking of plumbing, I got a good uh, <laughs> got a good uh, stringing together these segues in a really natural way. No, this one really works. Uh, so I've got a great uh, insight from uh, reddit.com slash r slash Christianity, and I need your help answering it, Dean. Please, for the love of I'm God, I prepared. need your help, your expertise yeah. in Christianity. I've already been drinking. <laughs> so you're ready for this one, huh? Okay. Um, <laughs> so the title is called <laughs> Horrified by Super Mario Odyssey, posted one year ago. <laughs> um, so Dean, you are familiar with Super Mario Odyssey, the game for the Switch? Uh, yeah, I've never played it, but I am familiar. Okay, I think that you'll be fine <laughs> with this question. <laughs> so this user writes, hey, oh, sorry. He says, hey, guys, I am really shocked by this game because even if you aren't a Christian, the idea of a good guy just possessing whatever he wants is really freaky. You can possess enemies, normal animals, humans, objects like giant puzzle pieces, and even your allies like Yoshi. 
<laughs> I kind of wish this game was more controversial because even in fiction, this is a really horrible way to portray a heroic character like Mario, the plumber. <laughs> How do you guys think about this? When I talk about it on our Nintendo, I just got a heaping. <laughs> I just got a heaping of it's fictional, but that shouldn't change the metrics about what we think is heroic or not. So, Dean. Please, um, can you yeah. tell us how we can think about this, first of all? Um, also, uh, uh, yeah. should this or should this not change the metrics about what we think is heroic or not? Is it okay? Is it Christian for Mario to possess Yoshi with his uh, magical hat? Gosh, that's a really good question. Please tell me that uh, you've done some reconnaissance and found the analogous post in our Nintendo. <laughs> I have, I have uh, not done that, no. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, we'll figure that out off the air. Um, <laughs> I kind of, like, for my own sanity, I think I need to not look at that. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably right. Um, yeah, you know, I get it. I, I, I get it. It's easy to dunk on people on our Christianity, but, you know, this raises just a really good, important moral point, and it's one that we don't talk about often enough. Uh, video games are just rife with demons, and usually they're pretty obvious and you kill them, right? That's that's what you're supposed to do. Uh, I beat Diablo, you have to kill the devil himself. Uh, that's how a video game ought to be. Uh, turning the tables like this when you're a secret demon, even possessing your very friends, uh, I don't like it. I think it's a sign of the moral decay of our society, and I think it's bad news. I think that you're right about that. Yeah, I mean, because uh, so demons possess humans. We all know that. But uh, Mario possessing other things? I don't think so. That's not the uh, that's not, not the uh, shining tower of Western culture that I know and love. That's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I also don't like that this video game really appeals to my carnal desires, namely possessing a dinosaur, which I'll never be able to do. So it's kind of a double whammy of occasions for sin. Yeah, that's true. Uh, also, uh, it's 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 triply upsetting too, uh, being that dinosaurs are also sort of invented by the devil. Um, yeah, I mean they are just big giant demons, right? Science knows that. Science does know that. Hey, here's a really upsetting comment that I need you to listen to. I read it, and now you all have to hear about it too. Um, that's why they call it Reddit. That's exactly why they call it that. Uh, so another user comments, explain to me how temporarily possessing a Goomba is different than a service dog. <laughs> uh, you got me again. It's not. It's the, it's the same thing. I guess I've, I've completely, I've done a 180. Uh, I'm so impressionable tonight. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know what? I've, I've changed my mind. Um, just like I possess my service dog. Uh, Mario 2 possesses the Goombas. Mm -hmm. So, um, there you go. <laughs> uh, Reddit, what a great, great gold mine. What, what a seminary education in just a message board. Yeah, can we just do one more really quick one? This will this will only take a few minutes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so here's another post. Um, and uh, it's a pretty simple question, but I figure you'd know the answer. Does anybody know of any Christian-themed foods? For example, in my country, England, we have hot cross buns, sweet rolls with an icing <laughs> cross on them. So, Dean, uh, do you know of any Christian themed foods? Um, I mean, there are a couple of obvious ones. You've got the angel food cake, the devil food cake. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. some of the I guess some of the lesser known ones are, you know, um, Elijah's uh, sweet bear dinner. Uh, and it can only be consumed by uh, <laughs> terrified young children. <laughs> That's right. Um, didn't they make, okay, this is, um, this is a Bible quizzing, uh, deep dive into my brain, uh, Ezekiel bread, not the kind that you buy at the store, but the kind from the Bible, they made it with poop, right? Yeah. Like they cooked it over, they cooked it over poop. <laughs> I mean, Ezekiel did himself. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. So you got yep. poop bread and you got bears eating kids. And of course you have, you know, the divine meal itself, uh, the Eucharist, kind of an embarrassing omission on the part of the OP. Yeah. Uh, good point. Um, in the case of Protestantism, the most Christian food is like Welch's grape juice. <laughs> Welch's grape juice and uh, pieces of paper that they're calling uh, bread. <laughs> That's right. Uh, my church uses uh, Hawaiian rolls. Uh, oh, nice. Or like like that... the big round Hawaiian bread. And honestly, I can't eat Hawaiian bread uh, the same way. <laughs> you guys are paying your tithes over there because when I went to Protestant churches, they were just handing out like the equivalent of very thick stamps. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they make you eat them. They watch you while you do it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. What are you going to do? Take it outside? No, thanks. <laughs> well, there we, we did it. We answered all the Reddit questions. There's no more. Everyone, thankfully, really short, short Reddit uh, forum this week. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs>
All right. Uh, so we are going to talk about these articles today. And just to kind of set the stage, we found them kind of just trolling like university libraries, basically, which is a thing that I do a lot, um, which explains a lot, explains why I don't have anything done. Um, but I found this crazy journal called Religion, State and Society. And it was all about, for a long time, kind of looking at the relationship between Christianity and communism, specifically in Europe, uh, and in, in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. And it's really crazy. I'm still kind of diving through it. Most likely, if I have access to it, I guess if you have an academic library, you probably do too. Uh, but we pulled out three articles from a specific issue, just because they really kind of jumped out to us. Uh, so it's volume 21, number one from 1993. Uh, and this issue is significant because it includes uh, reflections by liberation theologians and people talking about liberation theology in the wake of the fall of the Soviet Union. So it just raises a lot of really, really interesting questions. And I mentioned at the top, we're going to talk about Boff and Beto. Uh, but we also looked at one article that we'll talk about just really, really briefly to set some conversational uh, stages here, I guess. Um, so this article is called, Who are the Poor? Theology of Liberation in Eastern Europe Under Communism. And it's by a guy named Philip Walters, who I don't really know anything about, I'm sorry to say. Uh, but in any case, the article is kind of what it sounds, but also kind of not what it sounds like. Um, it's trying to talk about theology of liberation in Eastern Europe and comparing and contrasting that with liberation theology, uh, specifically as it gets manifested in Latin America. Um, so, Matt, uh, I mean, I think it's like worth talking about this article just to slowly ease us into what's at stake in some of these issues. But I'm just curious to hear up front. Uh, what really stuck out to you here? Yeah, well, okay. We can kind of frame this whole conversation maybe in, in light of this little, like, provision. Okay, so um, 1993 would be after the Berlin Wall fell, right? It's like after communism is over in the USSR. It's like the end of history, that whole kind of thing. Um, and the question that kind of remains that this journal is kind of trying to tackle is, you know, what happens to liberation theology if Marxism has failed um, in the Soviet Union? Um, and I don't know. I guess it's a good question. Um, in this Walters piece, though, it's really interesting um, because uh, basically what he's doing is trying to kind of do this comparative theology about, like, what did the folks in Eastern Europe who were most negatively affected by communism um, you know, like what, what do they have to say about liberation theology, right? Like what does liberation mean for them? Who are the poor, right? Is kind of like the question that he wants to ask. Um, right. But uh, what we end up getting from this is actually kind of weird. It's like, okay, he's very critical of communism and the Soviet Union and like in Christianity and like how all that works and like good, right? Like I think that's a criticism that is worth exploring and worth having, Um you know, like I, on the podcast, we we try to be pretty good about like not pulling our punches, even if it's like socialist or communist, right? Like we don't want to be ideologues or something. If uh, if the USSR was bad to Christians, like, yeah, it's worth criticism. It's worth uh, figuring it out. Um, but this piece is kind of weird, though, not because of that, but because it's making these kind of like weird comparisons. Like um, it's trying to make this comparison between uh, a type of like think a type of way that Christians in Eastern Europe thought about liberation um, and trying to draw a parallel with the way that liberation theology works, but it's not a very apt comparison. Um, so at the very end of the article, he kind of talks about it being less of a theology of liberation and more of a type of Christian realism in the sort of Reinhold Niebuhrian sense. So at the end of the article, he kind of puts it all this way, kind of in one big concluding sentence. Um, so Walter says, Christians concerned with liberation in Eastern Europe have developed then a distinctive form of Christian realism, which combines a program of self-renewal and self-liberation by the individual with a program of gradual and peaceful reform in society. So this is not the liberation theology of, you know, um, of, of Gutierrez or of Boff or of Fry Beto or whatever, right? It's uh, a pretty different approach to uh, Christian politics. It's, it's a Christian realism that um, might be like socialist in some type of uh, orientation, uh, but socialist in the way that like Reinhold Niebuhr is socialist, not socialist in the way that like Castro's socialist. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, and I think the reason f- that we should spend a few minutes on on this before just jumping to the next couple of articles is that there's something worth talking about here, right? Like, Christianity existed in the Soviet Union, and it was really complicated. And it isn't the case that the USSR was always good about it. Uh, at the same time, it's not the case that the USSR was always bad about it, or that Christians felt one way, kind of obviously, or that Christians concerned with liberation always felt the same way. Uh, it's a very, very complicated and tenuous relationship between Christians and uh, different places in the Soviet Union. Um, different Soviet republics had different kinds of policies and approaches and all that kind of thing. Um you know, just kind of coincidentally, like we were reading some stuff from Roland Bohr not too long ago, where he talks about this fascinating pastor in East Germany who kind of built a whole conversation around Christian Marxist dialogue, for example, and it was like a really amazing thing. Um, in Czechoslovakia, there were a lot of really intriguing experiments trying to create some conversations uh, between these two two kind of worldviews or whatever. And you would get the impression, wrongly, I think, reading an article like Walter's, that would suggest that now that the Soviet Union is falling, all the progressive Christians are finally getting, like, the freedom that they've always wanted to criticize communism and come out with some other kind of progressive vision, like a third non-ideological form of Christianity. And I think that would be misleading. Uh, There's a certain polemic that is embedded in Walter's article um, and it's worth bringing up because we're about to talk about Boff and uh, Beto kind of dealing with the, the history and legacy of the USSR. Um, and it's worth kind of noting the complication, like even the way these these stories are getting told uh, right off the bat. Yeah, totally. So let me read this um, this other piece to give you a little bit more flavor about what this Walters piece is like. Uh, so he says, in Eastern Europe, the governing ideology was indeed a, quote, system of truth. He's talking about Marxism which sought to exclude any other, and this fact had profound implications for the content of Christian liberation in that part of the world. Meanwhile, Christians in Latin America have been able to approach Marxism afresh. They have not been faced with an entrenched and fossilized system of, quote, fideus Marxism, to use Dennis Turner's phrase. They have understood Marxism as a set of tools. Okay, so um, this is a way, this is how Walters is starting to situate the um, the socialism and the communism of Eastern Europe uh, in contrast with the way that liberation theology works through Marxism. Uh, and I guess it's kind of interesting. I mean, like, I guess I can see that like being like a, a real difference, right? Like um, especially if, um, you know, the Soviet Union and other Eastern European social states weren't uh, great for Christians, right? Like uh, on the one, the Christians in Eastern Europe are feeling like very cynical about it, whereas the Christians in Latin America are feeling like very uplifted by it. And I think that's something that's worth pointing out. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And it's worth pointing out that the material conditions of both of these uh, theological situations are very, very different. Um, and even different from, like, just recently we were talking about K.H. Ting in China, right? Like, that's also a very, very different kind of material condition for the development of thinking about Christianity and liberation. Uh, and it's a good point that Walters makes. Um, elsewhere in the article, he talks about how, like, uh, being in Latin America is significant because if you're going to be a Marxist, you kind of have to be a Catholic or at least find a way to talk to Catholics, just given the demographic difference. Um, which was not the same exact case in the Soviet Union, although lots and lots of people were uh, some kind of Christian believer at the time of the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, but nevertheless, it's true that this is a, a an important difference of, of circumstance, and we shouldn't be kind of uh, misled also on our own part into thinking that like Christianity and communism always enjoy the same kinds of conditions for talking with one another in every society. Yeah, totally. Um... Some of what rubs me the wrong way about Walter's article, though, is like historically it kind of glosses over some pretty big things or it makes it seem a little bit more neat and tidy than it actually is. Um, so, like, you know, he's talking about the cynicism of Christians in Eastern Europe toward uh, toward socialism. And like that is probably totally the case and maybe it's deserved like, you know, whatever. Um, I, I guess like I'm always allergic to using a, that type of cynicism um, as like uh, as cover for, uh, you know, for capitalism sort of like, you know, um, reestablishing itself in those countries, because it's it's not like that transition from, um, you know, like 
Soviet states or whatever to capitalism was like a totally like bloodless and positive thing either. Right. There's a huge right. human component to that transition too. And I, I just, I just don't think that should be like left out of the story. Right. Like there maybe is a cynicism uh, about socialism, but also like the transition from it, uh, you know, was hugely negative for people too. Yeah, I think that's right. And he also, I mean, one reason that I also felt suspicious about the account that he gives is toward the end when he talks about that Christian realism that you mentioned earlier, uh, he also points to some people who were using words like they were going to find a way to be like radically conservative or uh, above ideology or non-ideological. And to me, those are always, uh, they always strike me as the products of someone who either has not thought through what they're actually saying and therefore become kind of convenient <laughs> tools for anti-communists. Right. Uh, or they uh, are just not willing to say what they actually mean. Um, and, you know, he, he sort of uncritically praises that as, as the liberating moment in Eastern European Christianity. And that to me seems like a, I don't know. I don't know what the right word for it is. It, I don't know if it's just a mistaken analysis or a disagreement or something that's disingenuous, but in any case, I don't. Uh, it's not the kind of thing I would point to and say, this is what it would mean to have a, a liberation theology in or after the Soviet Union or something. Yeah, I think it's just disingenuous. Like you can't <laughs> you can't praise someone who is going to be radically conservative and also not ideological. Like um, that's not that's a contradiction in terms like everything is ideological. Yeah. How would you even do that? I mean, right. radically conservative and not ideology ideological is like, uh, you know, it's definitely like a, a buzzword or an ideograph for people who are not socialists, right? Like, <laughs> oh, it's just co it's just common sense economics here. Um, it's just like it's not ideological. It's just, you know, conservative or whatever. And it's like, well, that's ideology. What are you talking about? Right. Uh, I think this is a really good chance to pivot over to Fry Beto's article, actually, to talk a little bit more about what's going on there. So he wrote this really fascinating piece called Did Liberation Theology Collapse with the Berlin Wall? And I love just the framing of that right, right in the beginning, um, because the presumption is that liberation theology is intimately tied to the project of the Soviet Union. And Beto is going to try to distance it in some ways, but not absolutely. And that's a much, much different kind of take than what Walters is doing. Um, probably you could do a very intriguing comparative analysis of like what's being said about the relationship between theology and the Berlin Wall in, in both of these pieces. Uh, but I think that what Beto does is really impressive um, because he doesn't uh, he doesn't approach the fall of the Berlin Wall as a uh, complete and total disaster for liberation theology. But he does approach it as a significantly, ultimately, probably bad move <laughs> for like global history and, and world economics. So um, maybe I'll just start out by reading the very first paragraph or, or a few lines. Yeah. Um, and we can kind of get into it. Yeah. So Beto says, for critics of liberation theology, the fall of the Berlin Wall also meant the end of that theology, which had sprung up in Latin America some 25 years earlier. They claim that in using Marxist theory to analyze society, which puts socialism on a utopian par with the cause of liberation, the theology ideologized itself to such a degree that when socialism collapsed in Eastern Europe, it lost all credibility as a symbol of hope for the poor, and hence as a legitimate reflection on the divine mystery within Catholic doctrine. To be quite objective, we must not forget that the essential nature of theological discourse, or what the essential nature of theological discourse is. Even though the language it uses is characterized by ideological presuppositions, which are proof of its incarnation and its evangelizing nature, the discourse itself is not confined to the place and time of which it's a product, even though, of course, it can't dispense with these elements. In its intrinsic references to the Bible, to Christian tradition, and the magisterium of the church, it transcends the context which produced it. So here's the move that I think is brilliant on Beto's part and, and really fascinating. What he's trying to say is a lot of people identified liberation theology so closely with the Berlin Wall or with the, the socialist uh, project in the Soviet Union and, and Marxism in general that they felt that the, the perceived collapse of communism around the world would also mean the collapse of liberation theology. So the assumption is that liberation theology is just a, a pretty lazy um, uh, cover for for communism and, and that's it uh, and what Beto does is to distance liberation theology not by actually saying well no we're not we're not um, interested in socialism really 
but rather to say, well, we're interested in something that's actually even bigger than the Soviet Union, even if the Soviet Union might be a part of that. And that is the, you know, the theological preaching of the good news in the world. And that also might mean socialism. Uh, so that's kind of the argumentative tack that Beto is going to use. And we can come back to how it relates to Walters later, but I just think it's a really neat way of kind of reformulating the relationship between the Soviet Union and theologizing about like how to care about the poor uh, in the world. Yeah, I think it's a pretty good answer to that question um, that he sets up, you know, about the Berlin Wall, that um, liberation theology can transcend the historical situation. I mean, like that's what writing does <laughs> in its very nature um, is transcends its exact moment. Um, but also it actually, I mean, it reminds me exactly of the way that Marx talks about communism in the German ideology. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. right. That communism isn't, um, isn't a stable state, but it's like the abolition of capitalism. Like historically, it's that, that process over a long period of time. Um, communism is, you know, the real struggle against capitalism and like liberation theology is part of that struggle. So I don't know, um, the Soviet Union can fall and, uh, liberation theology and Marxism and communism is still happening. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I think I like to just playing this off the, the Walters piece. Um, the presumption is also not that uh, liberation theology now has to kind of reckon with the like, you know, the evils of socialism or something like that. I mean, truly, it does to some degrees, like uh, it has to deal with injustices that happen in, in all societies. Um, but the presumption is more that, uh, well, now we have to figure out what to do without uh, a global check on capitalism. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is a much, much different way of framing the conversation of what will liberation theology look like and who are the poor? That's Walter's big question. Yeah. Um, well, that's a pretty good segue into the next uh, bit of the Beto article. So I'll read that. <laughs> uh, Beto says, if it's true that socialism has collapsed in Eastern Europe, it is also necessary to remember that capitalism has always suffered from a chronic lack of self-sufficiency through its incapacity to respond to social demands. By nature, capitalism is inegalitarian and exclusive and tends to concentrate its resources. Each rich capitalist country is the product of at least 20 poor satellite countries. Only those who ignore how apparently international institutions like the IMF, the World Bank, or the OCED, or the Club of Paris actually work are still naive enough to believe that there exists such a thing as aid for the development of needy nations, which is disinterested or sincerely interested. Nowadays, foreign debt obliges the poor to give their rich creditors even what they do not have. I think it's a pretty uh, profound statement, actually, right? Like, if you think that socialism has collapsed, wait till you hear about capitalism and what it, and like <laughs> yeah. what it has to do to keep running, right? right? It has to find ways to vampirically suck the blood of 20 other poor satellite countries, you know, through colonialization or, um, you know, the imperialism or whatever, right? Uh, that's how capitalism works. Uh, so if you don't like socialism, you don't like what it did and you don't like that it fell and you're mad about it, well, uh, look at the apparatus that has to be in place for capitalism, the, the whole right. world system, as it were. Yeah, I love to you the way that Beto frames this is not only to call our attention to exploitation, which is, is clear and obvious, right? He even treats it as like, surely you can't be dumb enough to think that this isn't going on, <laughs> which I appreciate. But uh, also, there's this great insight that I think only a liberation theologian could really reflexively uh, deploy. And that's, uh, he says... Uh, capitalism has always suffered from this chronic lack of self-sufficiency through its incapacity to respond to social demands, right? So, like, there's a clear Marxist uh, thing there, too, right? Like, the, capitalism creates its own contradictions. People get pissed, and they do what they got to do. Uh, but what Beto does, and I think hearing it come through Beto's, uh, Beto's own writing, is to call our attention to the way in which this affects, like, real people who are suffering, uh, capitalism can't actually address those needs and, and the demands that are being made uh, on it to give people a good and, and healthy life. And so it has to keep on moving things around uh, just to keep itself alive. It's this really kind of perverse thing, right, that not only does it ignore or fail to uh, resolve these demands, but it actually continues to exacerbate them by like outstripping them to the point where the poor have to give the rich creditors even what they don't have. Um, that's such a like, liberation theology way of looking at something to really center the the destitution of the poor and then build a critique from there and i think you know that's the kind of thing that always lives on uh whether or not the soviet union is around 
Yeah, totally. Um, also, <laughs> another quick uh, aside to Marx too: the the foreign debt obliges the poor to give the rich creditors even what they don't have is like basically an echo from the Communist Manifesto. Yeah, that's right. Uh, when Marx is talking about how um, people are always scandalized about uh, the abolition of private property, he's like, "Well, workers already don't have anything. Like, what are you right. talking about?" <laughs> um, and I think that's it's still. I mean, it's a good point to make, and it's a it's a good point to even continuously like even now make right even in the even in the age of like consumer capitalism, where we, you know, um, people um, are poor, but also own a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still a good, uh, a good thing to repeat because like uh, people are poor and own a lot of things. And also like uh, everyone is so in debt that like, you know, if the bank were to suddenly call in uh, all of the debts we owe, we would be in serious trouble. Right. <laughs> so right. Um, I think that the giving what we don't have is kind of the the situation of finance capitalism at this point, too. So it's a, a prescient uh, thing to say. Yeah. Um, all right. So to retrace a little bit of ground before moving on. So but I was trying to say that liberation theology transcends the the particular material history of the Soviet Union, even if it's tied to it in some important ways. Um, and, and he's also trying to reckon with, with what it means to lose that ally, uh, to liberation theology, to lose, uh, the socialism of Eastern Europe. Um, but I think, uh, a, a move that he makes in this article that really just stuck out to me too, is to inquire into why liberation theology seems to be a little less popular in the nineties than it was in the past. Um, so the way he opens the article is with detractors of liberation theology, imagining that the fall of the Berlin Wall is also the fall of liberation theology. And it would be easy to tell that story, I think. People people do tell it a lot. Um, but Beto has a different story, and he says this. Um, if certain sectors of liberation theology are retreating back on themselves today, it's not because of the fall of the Berlin Wall, even if this fall does give serious food for thought to people, Christian or not, who are looking for an alternative model of society. The reason for the retreat is pressure coming from the center of power in the Catholic Church, pressure which actively favors the restoration of institutional hegemony to the detriment of local churches, the advances introduced by the Second Vatican Council, and enculturated evangelization. Uh, He also goes on to uh, throw some shade at Cardinal Ratzinger, future Pope (laughs) Benedict, not the Pope right now. Uh, Love that. Pretty satisfying. Uh, but um, I like this point a lot because the idea is that Beto is kind of calling the bluff of people who are naive enough to say that, oh, well, socialism failed. So I guess that means everybody who likes it also failed. Uh, and this is just a, you know, a natural symptom. Uh, Beto is actually calling our attention to the way in which things like liberation theology have to be actively disciplined uh, by a hierarchical and institutional power. Um, and I think that's really important, too, that, you know, he's saying liberation theology is not just a, a thing that's following the, the Soviet Union or socialism or whatever, um, but it's also something that's having to deal with, like, problems within its own community, and it's getting policed, and, and that's a, a major factor that people just don't, like, don't want to face or, or don't often face, and that's, you know, you can't really leave that part out. Yeah, totally. It's an important point to make just to drive home the point that like um, liberation theology uses Marxism as a tool, not as like a guiding principle or something. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. get that there. There's probably some more that we can say about this article, but we need to move on so we can talk about this wild Clodovis boff article. Um, <laughs> it is really something to deal with. Uh, but before we do, um, we'll quickly just uh, say a few things about the conclusion to Fry Beto's article. So he gives us eight challenges as conclusions, and they're all, you know, pretty good for the most part. Um, but we can just talk about a few because uh, eight is a lot. It's a lot of challenges. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the first one is this. Nothing indicates that revolutions understood as the violent destruction of the state are going to occur with the same frequency as in the past. In this context, it would be better to work through instruments of socio-analytic mediation like popular trade union and political movements. This includes the need for pastoral work in the political sphere. Yeah, that's kind of an interesting insight. I don't know if it's exactly true. I mean, living in 2019, it doesn't seem exactly true. We've, we live through, you know, the Arab Spring and Occupy Wall Street and all these other kinds of things. But um, yeah, I guess an interesting point. Yeah, at the same time, though, don't those very examples prove the point, right? These were not the violent destructions of the state. Um, They were certainly political movements, like even very radical ones. Uh, But, you know, 
they didn't lead to the same kind of thing that happened in Cuba and Russia and Vietnam and Korea and China, all these other places. And, you know, by and large, apart from a few significant um, examples of the contrary, it seems like that's kind of like par for the course. Like even the Zapatistas, uh, they won some autonomous zones, but it's not like they've taken over Mexico. Yeah, that's true. That actually happened. That happened the year after this article was written. So that's yeah, that's right. Pretty crazy. Yeah, that's true. I mean, like, um, it is true that like you know, um, in the during the Arab Spring, like in Egypt, right? Like they didn't establish a social state. They did destroy the government, but that's another story, right. I suppose. Right? Um, yeah. Okay. Fine. Fine, Fry Beto. I'll take it. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, what I think is great though about this is. Um, well, there were two things that came to mind. One is the article we read a while back by Althusser uh, about the church having to become a, uh, like, really transformed by participation in liberation for proletarian peoples. And there's something about that that kind of shines through here. Maybe I'm just reading too much into it, but it seems to me like Beto is really pulling for that idea that Christians should be the leaven in the dough of hmm. political movements, right? Like, they don't need to form a separate Christian party or something like that. Like they need to go figure out what's going on in unions, yeah. what's going on in like parties and that sort of thing. And that need that he calls pastoral work in the political sphere. I mean, Beto himself has lived this out. Like even since this time, you know, he was very, very involved in the struggle to get Lula elected, for example, even while he has been critical of Lula to the left um, in Brazil itself. Right. He, he's lived this very kind of challenge out. Um, and still it's like food for thought, especially for those of us who don't live in like revolutionary situations. Uh, you know, what does it mean to kind of hold open the hope for revolution? Um, I think Beto is trying to at, like get us to ask that question in a way that sort of is like sober and not like lost in our own, I don't know, dream world of revolution or something. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Okay. The second thing he says is, um, pretty cool <laughs> so uh <laughs> the second challenge is that um liberation theologians need to move beyond class to consider other types of oppression which should lead christians to rethink some pretty fundamental stances on things like homosexuality and sex work he doesn't see this as like abandoning socialism um or christianity but like inquiring into it more deeply so i don't know good challenge i think that uh socialism should figure these things out too yeah, totally. And and the idea that to move beyond class wouldn't be to abdicate the social struggle is really important. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. Thanks, Fribetta. I'll take that one, too. <laughs> uh, the last one uh, is probably the most, I don't know, it feels a little more sort of prophetic or whatever, but he says that we really need an ecological horizon. Uh, and in that context, he, he specifically ties it to the experience of people in the third world. Um, this sort of goes back to the episode we did on eco-socialism, uh, where we talked through some writing by another Brazilian, Michael Lowy. Um, but obviously, like the thing that should come to mind, I think, at least for me immediately, is something like Laudato Si, right? Pope Francis has, has taken this on in some ways, probably not in the way that Beta would want uh, in terms of the, the radicality that might be possible. But nevertheless, um, Beta was right to say all the way back in the early 90s that ecology is where socialists need to be looking and liberation theologians need to be looking and there is something kind of encouraging in this big dumb hell world that we live in that uh the pope of the catholic church is thinking about this and many many other uh progressive christians are thinking about it too yeah um okay i don't want to dwell on the hell world that we live in any longer so let's move <laughs> on <laughs> fair enough uh yeah i don't know if we're gonna if we're gonna get out of this one but that's fine. Uh, okay. Hey, so that's the Fry Beto article. We've been through two already. It's fantastic. We're making great time. Um, really we're going to move on to the third and last and also just like strangest one from Cladovis Boff. That's uh, Leonardo Boff's brother. Is it? Do you know if it's his older brother or younger brother? You know, I don't know that. It's his Cladovis brother. It's his. It's the most Cladovis brother. That's his birth <laughs> order. Um <laughs> Great. He does read like a he does read like a classic Cladovis. Yeah, he is a classic Cladovis. He's got a real Cladovis case of rhetoric here. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So the Cladovis Boff article is really interesting because it is hmm really weird in form and rhetoric. So it's a letter that Cladovis Boff is uh, another Brazilian, by the way, in case you didn't know, is writing to his friends about the various travels he's taken to China, the USSR and to Cuba. 
Um, but like, if anyone ever sent me a letter like this, I would not be their friend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dang! I disagree. This is the best. Uh, I want, I want more Clodova's bar friends. Okay, fine. <laughs> it's like a ten-page letter that's like um, mostly social, like a mostly like a theory about how socialism works. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but for a second, yeah, imagine. Imagine if we had like a uh, another testament in the Bible, and it was just letters of of things like this. Like Paul's writing all these letters about how I don't know he's like messing up some weird theology stuff in Romans or whatever, and he like can't figure out what's going on. Uh, but here's Quidavus Boff like sending a you know an apostolic letter <laughs> back to his friends and be like, hey, guess what? I learned about socialism. Yeah, it definitely does have that like well, okay, either biblical or extremely nineteenth century like eccentric <laughs> philosopher kind of vibe to it. Where like, yeah, that's right. You're not going to write a journal article about this. You're not going to write a book. You're going to write a letter to your friends where you're just like going to bullshit them <laughs> about socialism for a little bit. <laughs> that's right. Okay, well, so here's the general idea behind the article. He's writing to his friends and he's like, "Hey, f- hey, friends! I've just been to all of these places. They're socialists. Isn't that interesting?" Um, are you asking yourself right now how you might define socialism? Well, I've got that figured out for you. I'll tell you how to define it. <laughs> so he starts like he just gets like right into it with these like really weird rhetorical turns. Uh, so he starts off the article like this. At this point, the great danger is to get lost in a haze of general definitions or even mystical affirmations, such as that socialism is not a social system, but a moral attitude being on the side of the poor or fighting for justice. This easily ends up as mystification. Who isn't on the side of the poor and justice? So like he's been to he's been to these socialist countries and he's going to tell you about them. Um, and you might be thinking, hey, what's socialism? And he starts off by saying, well, people say it's a lot of things, but, you know, it's vague. We can't just we can't stop these like mystified, uh, mystified sort of examples, these uh, in exact uh, definitions. We should think of a good uh, a good way to define socialism. Uh, so he spends the rest of the first half of the piece defining socialism. And then he spends the rest of the last half of the piece talking about Christianity and communism. And it is a wild thing. Okay. Yeah. It is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is how he starts defining socialism. Um, so Dean, uh, I'll read this bit here and then we can kind of talk it out and see if this actually works. Um, yeah, we can, we can critique of the Gotha program this one. <laughs> Um, So Cladovis Boff says, I start by saying that socialism is not in essence a complete social system, nor just a method of organizing economic production is more exactly a way of organizing all of society starting from the socialized economy or alternatively it is a way of organizing the economy which has implications for politics and ideology socialism is then a type of socialized economy but it implies a type of politics which are democratic and ideology which is pluralist so what do you think dean uh does that pass the the marxist sniff test what is this <laughs> what does that smell like to you yeah i mean i think that not all marxists would be down probably uh, a piece or two in here might raise some red flags but i will admit that i actually like it um i like it a lot because and here's what i like about it um most people will say and i i say this often myself that uh socialism socialism sorry mixing up all these words is just a way of organizing who owns what right it's just about production uh, and that that makes it less threatening in a way, because then all these other things in your life aren't really at stake. It, it just becomes a question of, well, like, who do you want to own the place where you work? Um, and there's some rhetorical power to that, but it is a little bit disingenuous. And Boff is right to say that actually, even if you were to socialize production, it implies all kinds of other things, uh, a democratic way of thinking about politics and a pluralist approach to thinking about ideology and, and, and thinking. Uh, naturally, the pluralist part about ideology is probably the most contentious, I think. Um, but I do think there's a point to be made about socialists trying to to really rescue these words, right? Um, pluralism and democracy are the kinds of things that get mobilized in capitalist societies to bludgeon socialist societies and say these aren't really democratic or not really pluralist or something. Uh, but socialism is actually trying to think about how we could have a genuinely democratic or pluralist society and as a definition, I think that, I don't know, it's something that I'm willing to strive for, the way that Boff lays it out here. Uh, I don't know. How did it strike you, Matt? Yeah, um, I think the same. I think it's good. Um, 
anytime anyone ever says, well, this concept is actually more complicated than you think it is, I'm always in because it always is more complicated than you think it is. <laughs> That's right. And um, Boff does get that socialism and capitalism are both kind of complicated political economies. But I do like the way that he kind of breaks them down into these component parts of uh, economy, politics, ideology. Uh, I kind of agree with you, too. The pluralist thing is like um, maybe like kind of aspirational sometimes. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there definitely are cases. And, you know, you have to when, when we're reading through this, you have to kind of keep in mind the places he has just been. Right. right. Uh, China, Cuba, the USSR. And um I don't know. I can't speak to all like how pluralist all of those societies were, but there are definitely pluralist elements to them that you could point to. Yeah, we should say too, um, just as like a point of order or something. So the journal was published in ninety three, but this article was written in nineteen eighty nine. So the USSR still existed uh, when he was writing it. Right. Um, anyway, uh, back to it. Yeah, uh, he goes on to say too to kind of like pull this concept into a little more clarity. He says a socialist society in the strict sense, a socialist economy presupposes the end of private property, not as such, but as the dominant form of ownership in its place, there arises collective or social ownership. And I mean, that's a pretty good point, right? That's a classic Marxist point that um, private property is a complicated thing. It's two words that you put together and kind of say whatever you want (laughs) with them. Uh, Like it doesn't denote a a metaphysical reality, right? Uh, And so the question is what property is actually private and and what makes sense to, to have as private. And, you know, the, as we've talked about in the show before, um companies don't want your toothbrush they don't want your family heirlooms or whatever they don't really even want like your living space (laughs) they just want other people to not own your living space or or the place where you work right as as private individuals um and that's good too i like the buff kind of brings in some uh less controversial um ways of talking about socialism in a marxist way yeah um i like that too and he does some more of that. Um, there's this quick turn that uh, I think we should bring up because it's kind of an interesting caveat to what he's saying that I think only makes sense when you think about it with regards to the, you know, the Soviet bloc of the 1980s or whatever. Um, so uh, he makes this quick aside and he says, what is really meant here is the important means of production, which form the real levers of a nation's economy. That's what should be um, collectively owned or socially owned. So we're not talking about small or medium-sized means of productions, which is a a weird turn of phrase. Um, (laughs) Small and medium-sized holdings of land, backyard factories, small or even medium-sized shops, all this can perfectly well remain in the hands of private groups and be left to their initiative. The current reforms in the Soviet Union and China, as I showed in my letters about those countries, are giving particular encouragement to the smaller-scale economic sphere. So small and even medium owners, and then parentheses, medium is always a relative term, have nothing to fear from socialism. It's the large owners, the bourgeois class who have something to fear and who get terrified and terrify others. So, okay, I mean, this makes sense right there. Um, I think during this time, there were some like um, still privately owned um, like farms in Cuba. And I'm sure that was the case in the USSR and China, too. It's just like a, a really... I mean, usually this this type of articulation when it comes to socialism is glossed over. Um, and it, it doesn't even seem like, I don't know, in my experience, it's rare that someone even like prescribes this type of thing. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's that's I guess what seems so weird to me, because like usually like <laughs> right, like the aspirational goal is for there not to be any <laughs> any private ownership that could, you know, exploit people. Um, and you know, uh, small or medium sized means of production could exploit people just as badly as the big means of production. So I don't know. It's a, it's kind of a weird thing. I don't really know what to do with it. Um, but there it is. Yeah. Uh, I guess he comes out as the revisionist that he is. So apologies to all the mouse to listen to the show, all two of you. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it is a weird turn of phrase, but I get kind of what he's saying too, because, the actual nuts and bolts of social societies are always weirder than people think. Um, you know, I think we've probably mentioned on the show before, too, and you just alluded to it. Like in Cuba, there were lots and lots of like small cooperative farms. And there's some really interesting stuff from Fidel talking about this, where he's basically like, actually, it's really good that they have them, because even though we're not really at a communist stage of society yet, like 
these people are entrepreneurial folks and they're not like against the revolution. They're actually trying to like use those uh, ambitions to find a way of like plugging some gaps that we can't really sort out yet. Um, and obviously these things are completely different in different societies. Um, it would take like a whole study to really kind of draw conclusions about that. Um, probably not worth making here, but in any case, like it's cool that Boff is at least like acknowledging that this is the case. And, uh, I don't know, like maybe he's a dirty revisionist, but also maybe he's just kind of like, you know, trying to uh, convince his friends in Brazil that uh, communism is less like crazy, less bizarre and like totally fantastical than you might have heard. Yeah, I don't think he's a dirty revisionist because he says some other things later on that we'll talk about in a minute that make it kind of make sense. I think he's really just kind of talking about the things that he saw when he was like in these countries. Right. Yeah. yeah, I, I don't know. So when I read when I read this the first time, I, I was thinking like charitably, oh, yeah, like, you know, like the cooperative farms in Cuba that were privately owned, like, OK, fine. And I was like, oh, but man, but what about all like the really bad, like free trade zones in China or something? Yeah, yeah. No, no, thank right. you. Those are right. those are not medium. Those are big and they need not to be medium size. They need to be socialized <laughs> quick. That's right. <laughs> um, OK, so he has some other things to say about the economy and how it should be controlled. Um, you know, it's good. It's good and nice to say that there should be collective ownership and that the workers should own the means of production or something. But how do you do that? So he thinks that you do it in three ways. So the first way is the state. Sorry, anarchists. <laughs> <laughs> you already out. Um, but uh, that's what Boff says. Uh, <laughs> the second, the second way you control the um, you control the economy is through associations of workers. So anarchists back in. Um, it's chill. Uh, and then the last one, which, uh, maybe is the one that pushes, us, pushes us all out is through private individuals and groups. <laughs> so, uh, okay. <laughs> but I guess that's true. Those are the three ways you can control the economy in a collectivized society, the state associations of workers like unions and also private individuals. That's probably all true and factual. <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, there's a lot more to be said about this and some really great things about democracy and, and what have you, but I feel like we should actually kind of pivot toward the end with the last yeah, uh, let's do 10 it. or so minutes. Yeah, um, so Boff talks about Christianity and communism, and it's pretty good. Uh, first, I guess I'll just put on the table the usual thing that gets said by Christians, where he says, first, the word communism is the oldest term to describe the communion of goods in society. You ought to know that this is a word of Christian origin and one even used by Christians until recently. Uh, I like that really ambiguous, uh, you know, until recently we got off the wrong, got off the rails. I don't think that's exactly true. Yeah, I don't think so either. uh, I wonder what he means by recently. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like the desert Um, fathers. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But in any case, like he's appealing to something that's true about the rhetoric of early Christianity. And of course, I mean, we all still read the same Bible um and it's right in there you can't really get out of it as uh jose miranda has taught us yeah totally um okay so then he goes on to say some more fun things about communism (laughs) um okay i like the way this this sentence starts off if you get the chance to look at one of the best known theological encyclopedias the dictionary of catholic theology written at the beginning of the century (laughs) look up the word communism it's in volume three (laughs) i love that if you get a chance to look at one of these theological encyclopedias yeah. yeah you know if you come across one Anyways, so if you do get the chance, you'll get a big surprise. You won't find anything about Marx or Engels, but only about Jesus Christ, the apostles, the first Christians, the fathers of the church, the monks, the mendicants, etc. Showing that this is a church affair, the biblical idea of communion of goods. Um, I'm not even going to tell you about the famous Christian communist republic. What? A- <laughs> I'm not even going to tell you about the famous Christian communist republic of Guarani, which is Paraguay, run by the Jesuits in Paraguay, which lasted for over 50 years between 1610 and 1786. Um, so he's just very, he's very excited about this as a thing. Um, he's not even going to tell you. So he's not even going to tell you about it. You know what? You go read, you go read this goddamn dictionary and you get excited <laughs> too. Um, I, uh, so I did get excited. Actually, I read that and I was like a Christian communist Republic in Paraguay. That sounds wild. And then I looked it up and actually Boff is very bad here. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the Christian communist Republic in Paraguay that was run by the Jesuits is just a really fancy name for the Jesuit reductions, um, which is, um, you know, a huge, uh, a huge mechanism of Catholic oppression upon, uh, the indigenous people of Paraguay. So. 
no thanks. Bad news. Yeah. Um, so Boff is probably wrong on that historical moment. Um, but uh, he's right to at least bring us back to this kind of communistic spirit of the Bible, and he keeps on doing it. Uh, he sees the the kind of Christian ideal as something that runs through socialism, uh, whatever we think about it today, right? The Christians should be thinking through how to at least sort of manifest the demands of, uh, of Jesus and also the models of acts where people don't have private property and they share all the stuff that they've got. Um, he also has this great moment where he paraphrases, paraphrases this aphorism from St. Ambrose, uh, and he says it like this, community comes from God, property comes from theft, <laughs> uh, which is not how Ambrose said it, but a very good slogan. Yeah, uh, Ambrose said, nature created community, private property is the offspring of usurpation. Um, but I like the way that Boff says it better. The bo- the way Boff says it is definitely like a Magnificast sticker, though, for sure, right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, well, I guess I'll have to make that. Uh, but this this uh, whole situation reminds me of that scene in The Office where Michael Scott puts up that <laughs> sign, that thing of uh, Wayne Gretzky's quote and the Michael Scott. So I feel like it really comes down to, uh, you know, St. Ambrose's uh, aphorism as told by. <laughs> that's right. By the time Michael Scott quotes uh, Abraham Lincoln. If you're if you're a racist, I will attack you with the north. <laughs> it's basically uh, yeah. it's in the spirit of the thing, you know. That's what's important. Yeah, that's right. Not in the case um, of Abraham Lincoln, but in the case of Saint Ambrose, I think so. <laughs> well, you can tell things are falling apart here at the Mind of Cast when uh, recording fake bourgeois bosses to uh, make points about socialism. I think that if um, there was a show where Mike uh, Michael Scott was in the IWW, I'd still watch it. <laughs> I agree. Uh, writers, get on it. Um, <laughs> writers, maybe get convince, us on it, please. We gotta, we gotta convince Tony Toast to do that one. Tony, so we have this idea for a, a new show. Can you pitch it to <laughs> <Tony> USA <laughs> for us? <laughs> uh, dads around the whole world are gonna love it. Um, it's got a real Longmire vibe. Uh, all right, so Boff uh, kind of closes out some of his thoughts, or at least we're gonna close out with this thought from Boff. Um, saying, if there is a historical demand for socialism inherent in Christianity, the converse is not identical, but only similar. All socialism needs is an openness to Christianity and the religious question, that is, respect for the right of freedom of conscience and of religion. And this is a good note that I think sort of splits the difference between Beto and uh, going all the way back to Walter's earlier uh, article, um, you know, this is what Boff is sort of imagining that socialists don't have to be Christians necessarily, but Christians have lots of reasons to be socialist. And there's no reason that we can't find a way for these things to go together in theory. Uh, but all these things get obviously way more complicated in historical practice. Yeah, I think it's a nice note to end on. Uh, socialism just needs an openness to Christianity. Um, man, you know what, though, this is I'm uh, kind of in preparation for the book group that we're going to do in a few weeks. Uh, I was reading the very beginning of Communism in the Bible by Jose Miranda. And um, you could compare uh, this concluding sentiment with uh, Jose Miranda's opening sentiment. And uh, this is such a, a vastly different understatement. Uh, <laughs> if you'll remember, Jose Miranda opens his book by saying, like, um, Christians can be anti-Marxist. Like, that's fine. Uh, but Christians can't be anti-communist. And uh, right. Boff would be good to remember that. No, just kidding. But um, <laughs> it's a it's a different way to say something similar, but better. Yeah, I don't know. I actually think I like Boff's way, yeah, of putting it because uh, the idea is that um, Christians should maybe also be Marxists. Um, maybe I think they should too, but <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes they're too cynical because of the bad things that Marxists have done to them, and they should That's have true. been more open. And you know what? That's true. Yeah. Uh, here's a okay. We've gotten a few emails every once in a while in the last year and a half, two years of doing this podcast, and uh, every once in a while I get an email that says, "You know what? You're a little too excited about communism, and there are some rough things that went on." And you know what? It's true. I uh, wouldn't talk about it too much because I think everybody already knows that. Um, but it's true. Uh, Christians, even Christians that we love and care about a lot, uh, have had a hard time in communist societies uh, and a very, very bad time in many of them. And it's worth at least saying that every once in a while. So here we are saying it. <laughs> yeah, it's a good it's a good thing to say because it's factually true and that's fine. We're not ideologues and, and dumb. Yeah, uh, right. we did get uh, we get emails sometimes. The emails are always nice and kind and done in love. But one time we did get uh, an iTunes review that said that we were reported to the government. So <laughs> uh, we'll see you from Guantanamo Bay or something. 
I don't know. I don't know where they're going to put us. Where's jail. where's jail for podcasters? Uh, I think it's just our own our own apartment. <laughs> I think that we've made it for ourselves. Yes, that's right. Uh, yeah, I have to imagine that any FBI person listening to this is like they're suffering enough. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> They've created the weirdest niche podcast ever, where they have to read Reddit yeah. comments. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That's right. They've really dug themselves into a hole. They'll never get out of it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I can't wait for Mario to come possess my body. <laughs> Please, Mario, take me now. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. Uh, if you don't recall, if you didn't listen to the very beginning of this show, uh, we've got another podcast going on right now at our Patreon called The Damnificast. Uh, it is a weapon, two bucks a week, and you can hear all of it at the uh, website, patreon.com slash the Magnificast. This past week, we talked through episode two of this really great show with Jared Ware of Millennials Are Killing Capitalism, so don't miss that. Uh, we are also doing a reading group on Jose Miranda's book, Communism in the Bible, in the second week of July. So you've got to be on Patreon if you want to get in on that yeah, project. Yeah, really quickly, the tiers on Patreon actually matter for one second. So That's right. uh, <laughs> if you uh, are a $2 contributor on Patreon, you can get the Damnificast. Uh, if you are a $3 contributor on Patreon, you can join the book club. And if you give us $5, I will send you a message and say... I will send you a Magnificast pin if you give me your address. And I will. <laughs> While supplies last, I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then we're going to get tote bags. Uh, that's the next thing, I think. <laughs> All right, yeah. Uh, we'll get to work on them. Um, music, as always, is by Amori Armstrong and The Illogical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday there'll be no damn between us and our Lord